0: Somebody at dinner the other night asked me if I was looking forward to reaching 100. And I said, no, I'm looking forward to dessert.
1: Whether he's looking forward to it or not, Henry is turning 100 later this week. He spent the majority of those 100 years, 71 of them to be exact, with his wife, Alice. She passed away in 2013 at the age of 92. In honor of Henry's 100th birthday... Most of this week's episode is about him and his life with Alice. We'll start, though, with a story about a couple who decided to live a much harder life than most of us might choose. Maybe it's harder. Maybe it's richer. Maybe it's just life. Anyway, that's all coming up on Interstates, right after this. Welcome to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. We've got two stories this week. We're going to start with a story about a couple who've made some choices that I think a lot of people would admire, but most of us wouldn't actually make. They live in voluntary poverty, for example. They welcome people without homes to come in and live with them, with certain limitations, as you'll hear. Are they saints? Are they Catholic? Are they just regular people who get cranky as much as the rest of us? Katie Ratty brings us the story.
2: We're not different kinds of people or we don't have a higher tolerance for chaos or anything like we're just normal how do we get people to see that like they could do this too and the richness and the depth of life that they would experience would be awesome and hard in many ways it's a regular life so there's all the joy and all the heartbreak that goes on with a regular life and maybe a little bit more because there's so many more people (laughs) so there is a lot more joy and a lot more heartbreak I guess
3: That was Andrea Martini-Eiler, and she's one of the five adults and four children in the Bloomington Catholic Worker community. She founded it with her husband, Ross, over a decade ago.
4: We are an anarchist, Christian, intentional community that offers hospitality to folks who are facing homelessness. And ultimately, we are really just trying to live the revolution of the Sermon on the Mount.
3: When Ross says that, he's referring to a passage in the Bible where Christians get our most basic social teachings— Loving our enemies, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, and caring for the prisoner. The main tenets of the Catholic worker movement are...
4: Community life, uh, voluntary poverty, radical hospitality, and nonviolence.
3: There's some variation in the way Catholic worker communities operate, and some emphasize certain tenets over others. The members of the Bloomington Catholic worker community live in four houses on the northwest side of Bloomington with their guests, and they own their property in common. Everyone works part-time for enough income to pay the bills, but voluntary poverty means intentionally living with very little in their bank account. Most of their resources go toward in-house hospitality, which means they open their homes to people who would otherwise
2: be homeless. The two of us living the Catholic worker life together feels like giving it a real go, like trying out what we think Jesus is saying.
3: But how do you get there? How do you go from wanting to give it a real go to actually doing it? Andrea's journey into the Catholic Worker was not linear or certain. She went to college for a couple of years, but she decided to take some time off. She joined a religious volunteer program similar to AmeriCorps, which placed her with five Catholic nuns in Connecticut.
2: I lived in a, in a smaller house with five of them. They had a big mother house with like 80 of them. But I lived with five of them, and I worked in their ministries. And at some point, uh, Sister Sally, one of the two that I was closest to, Sister Sally and Sister Susan, she was like, you're never going to be Catholic, are you? And I was like, no, I don't think so. And she was like, well, you should at least be a good Protestant and be a Catholic worker. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what that means. So she took me to the Hartford Catholic worker. And the first time I went there, there was a there was a mom and a dad and they had two young kids. And they were debating which one of them should get arrested on Saturday at this protest. And I was like... Okay, crazy people, like, you got kids. What are you talking about?
3: Let me interrupt Andrea for a second. Remember what Ross said about nonviolence as one of the tenets of the Catholic worker? The movement was founded in 1933 by two Catholic anarchists, Dorothy Day and Peter Maurin. Since then, thousands of Catholic workers have been arrested for protesting every war since World War II, among other causes. Catholic worker parents try not to get arrested at the same time so that at least one of them is free to care for their children. Back to Andrea's night at the Hartford Catholic Worker.
2: And then that night, the the dad who had made dinner, I stayed for dinner at the Catholic Worker and he pulled me aside and he was like, so I don't, I don't recommend eating the mac and cheese because I did pull some maggots out of the dried noodles earlier. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is this place? And he was talking about how he had eaten, you know, you got all the stuff from a dumpster and I was like... Okay, this is crazy. I don't know why the nuns want me to be a Catholic worker, but this is nuts. That was my first taste of the, of the Catholic worker.
0: After
3: she finished college, she rejoined the volunteer program that she had done before. She lived in a house with five Catholic brothers. But where the nun's house was amazing, this house was terrible. She thought that she never wanted to live in community again. But that was the year Andrea met Ross.
2: So I, I went up to Chicago to do a year of volunteer work after I graduated from college and so i moved up to chicago and i was with um the clarician brothers and i was going to live with a few other people my age and work during the day at these volunteer places and um the first day that i was there one of the brothers we were walking along the lake shore and he was asking me about spirituality and religion and uh he said huh see it doesn't sound like you're catholic and i was like no i'm really i'm really not and he said you know what you sound like have you ever been to a Quaker meeting. You kind of sound Quaker. And I was like, I don't, I don't really know anything about the Quakers. He was like, I'll take you tomorrow. So Sunday, he shows up and he's got his whole like brotherly garb, cassock thing on and took me to Quaker meeting where no one else was wearing Catholic brother garb. <laughs> and uh, so he took me to the meeting. It was delightful. And then uh, 10 minutes in, somebody walked in, you know, 10 minutes late. And I looked up and I was like, oh, gosh, that guy's real cute. And then I went back to quiet worship. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's great. Uh, do you want to tell the next part?
4: Oh, the, the next part is...
2: It was it was Ross, by the way. Spoiler alert. Yes, yeah, so, hey. <laughs> it
4: But I also was noticed jacked. the, I think she had pink hair and was wearing army fatigues. And, and sitting next to the priest in the cassock at the Quaker meeting, I was like, who is this? And so then afterwards, during the coffee hour, I'm talking with with the brother, and he uh, he says, hey, I'm teaching an RCAA class, which is the, like, join the Catholic Church class. Do you want to take it now? I was like, no, because I don't want to join the Catholic Church. <laughs> and he said, uh, well, too bad, because the only person who signed up for the class so far is Andrea. And I said, when's that
3: class again? <laughs> so I took the class
4: just to meet the girl.
3: And it worked. At that time, Ross was a graduate student. He was volunteering at Sue Casa, a Catholic worker house on the south side of Chicago. Sucasa began as a house for victims of torture from El Salvador, but by the time Ross was there in the early 2000s, it was a house for undocumented immigrants, mainly women and
4: children. I started volunteering there, and I didn't know a word of Spanish, but I was like, <laughs> I was like, this isn't going to be a problem, and in many ways, it really wasn't. You know, um, so I sort of threw myself into this into this language barrier, which was. Um, which I did. I started studying Spanish not long after. And I didn't live in that community. I just would mm-hmm. stop by one day a week to volunteer and
2: what did you do when you were there? What did
4: I do? I swept. I did a lot of cleaning. I feel like they had like I answered the phone. They had like oh, they had house yeah, shifts. They yeah. so you had to be on house. So I'd be on
3: Ross house, said he felt compelled so to put his faith into action and live like the saints lived from a young age. The Sukasa Catholic worker house is a place where that calling felt answered. While he was in graduate school, he found himself spending more and more time there.
4: I felt really compelled, like I need to, for every hour I spend in the library, I should spend this much time with real people in poverty and on the streets and um, and try to match my academic book learning with the, a real experience of um, humanity and and whatever you can learn about the mystical body of Christ from, from people. And then just slowly over time, the, that, that equation of time spent reading books to time spent working with people got pushed farther and farther and farther. I was spending less and less time at the Regenstein Library and more and more time at the Catholic Worker until it just felt like uh, a kind of a clarity of vocation.
3: After a while on the south side, Ross and Andrea moved to the north side of Chicago and were closer to St. Francis House.
2: So he was starting to volunteer there and then started talking about moving in there. And I was like, no, I'm not doing community. So then we moved four blocks from them. Mm -hmm. And he would go over and I would go over like every now and then and just hang out. But I was not volunteering there. Uh, And then after almost a year of living near them, then I was like, "Okay, these people aren't as wacky as... The community I lived in that was terrible. So we could try living there. So then we moved into St. Francis House, and that kind of started our Catholic worker tenure. And then, so we lived there for a couple of years. And then when we got pregnant, we were like, well, this isn't the best place to raise kids. So we thought we would craft a place where you could do the Catholic worker and raise kids.
3: In 2008, they moved to Bloomington to do just that. There have always been kids in the Catholic worker, but they're not usually in the communities that house guests.
2: How do we do this? with the priority of keeping these children safe. But when you have the priority of keeping children safe, you can live in fear and build up lots of walls that don't lead to them having a meaningful life or interaction with the world. So mixing the priority of keeping them safe, keeping their bodies and minds and hearts safe, while showing them a life of caring for other people.
3: Nikki was one of the guests who lived at the Bloomington Catholic Worker last fall. She was really protective of the kids. She would chase after them if they rode their bikes too close to the road. The day I was there, Nikki treated Andrea and Ross's daughter to a facial and did her nails. Nikki moved in after being incarcerated. She told me that in prison, she had no agency and felt anxious and afraid all the time. She asked God to give her a safe place to go when she got out. She moved into the Catholic Worker House, where not only shelter, but also toiletries, food, and love waited for her.
4: First time that I came... It was around almost Christmas time and um, I came in and the Christmas tree was done (laughs) and it was right here in the um, front day room where we have our plants at right now and um, when I seen that, it was um, a warm, loving, comfort feeling right there and I was like, this is like home right here Um, to me and I was settled. That's when I was settled.
3: The Catholic worker's goal isn't to fix people or to help them achieve the kinds of milestones that other social service agencies do, like moving into an apartment alone. Their goal is much more ambitious.
4: You know, it's not like they're broken and we've got our shit together and our goal is to make them productive members of, you know, capitalist society. But instead, like, our goal is to love them. And that's, like, actually way harder. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Or we're much more aware of when we fail, I should say.
3: Loving their guests well requires them to set firm boundaries, though. The Bloomington Catholic Worker requires that their guests not have untreated substance abuse or mental health issues, for example. But relapse is a part of addiction recovery. And in the fall, one of their guests overdosed on fentanyl.
2: I walked in, and our guest was gray and blue. And that, to me, is dead. Like, people have a very normal skin tone. And she was absolutely dead. It was it was frightening, but we did fine and worked together. And our two other female guests and Ross and I all worked together. It was a very, like, community moment.
3: The four of them did CPR and managed to resuscitate her. Andrea said in the past, when guests lived in the house with the family and kids, the guests would have had to go, even knowing that someone struggling with addiction needed support rather than punishment. But this time, with the guests living next door, things were different.
2: So with this, we talked to the other two guests, Nikki and Sabrina, and we're like, we don't want to punish her. We don't want to discipline her. We also know you all need to stay sober. We've decided that if she went to an inpatient rehab for a full month, she could come back and try again. But we don't want to do that if you two feel like, no, 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 she overdosed. I want her out. We don't want to step on your toes about that. They were both very much having lived different, you know, addiction lives themselves, they were like, yeah, no, she just needs love and she has no one sober in her life. If she can go to rehab, that would be awesome. And then if she could live through rehab knowing I have a safe place to go after rehab, that would be great and we should love her. And and this is like our guests, like teaching us, right? They're like, no, 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 yeah, you shouldn't be asking us, you should be telling us this is how we love someone. You know, I was like, oh, okay, good idea. Um, So that's what I'll say is the beautiful part is we were able to be like, There was an effing heroin overdose in our homes. And then she went to rehab, and then she was able to come back. And we've never been able to offer that before.
3: The guest has since relapsed, though. She went missing for over a month. She's not missing anymore, but she doesn't live at the Bloomington Catholic Worker. Ross and Andrea want people to understand that they're not holier than the rest of us. They take personal responsibility for the vulnerable people who no one else is taking care of. But they're the first to admit that it doesn't always end well, and sometimes people are hurt, boundaries are crossed, and limits are tested. Even Nikki had to be asked to leave before her year at the Catholic Worker was up.
4: When you when you develop the practice of assuming responsibility for other people, when mm. you say, um, "I'm not passing the buck," but like it's, I'm going to be the stopgap. I'm going to try to help this person. This person is my responsibility. Your eyes are opened to the way that things are your own fault and the failings that you have and the feelings that we all have, that we all share, that the gravest ills in the world are also inside of me. Mm. And the things that I um, hate and decry and, and wave my fist at, in social injustice in the world like that's all if i actually take a look inside myself it's all there so so i there's just like a deep way in which living a life in community and offering hospitality to folks who are facing homelessness uh, it, it's a constant schooling in our own limitations which is a wonderful gift but there's so much joy too
3: the result of the work that they do and the sacrifices they make isn't scarcity In their view, they get to glimpse the kingdom of God, where social hierarchies can be torn down through everyone sharing what they can and taking what they need. All the joy and all the heartbreak of living a life close to people who are cast out by polite society, who live at the margins, it's worth it, even if paradise doesn't wait on the other side of this lifetime.
2: Even if, like, Jesus was a crock and, like, the things that I'm trying to do were all just made up, like, at the end of my life— I definitely wouldn't regret living this way, Mm -hmm. even if it's all like a bunch of bunk. Okay, it was still a good choice. Before I met Ross
3: and Andrea, I had spent a lot of time wondering about the Catholic worker. I wondered what kind of people it took to live a life of voluntary poverty and radical hospitality. I assumed that it took saints. But I found that it just takes normal people who have the courage to be generous with their time, resources, and love. They have a massive, quiet, contemplative dog named Honey. Their kids go to public schools and ask what's for dinner when they get off the bus. The day I was there, it was chili and cornbread, if you're wondering. Their fridge is covered in pictures and kids' artwork. A beautiful piano takes up half of the living room. The main thing that sets their life apart, like Andrea said, is that there's so many more people. More support when life goes sideways, more people to cook for and to break bread with, more heartbreak, but abundantly more joy.
1: That story was produced by Katie Raddy, a journalism student at Indiana University and intern extraordinaire at InterStates. Okay, it's time for a break. After that, we're going to hear about two young geologists who start a personal practice that ripples through their retirement community many decades later. This is InterStates. We'll be right back. It's InterStates. I'm Alex Chambers. Henry and Alice had the kind of marriage that seems perfect. They met in their early 20s, got married, had a couple of kids. They camped all over the country. All over the country, they went on walks together and held hands. Henry admired Alice's love of flowers and her knowledge of bird songs. Alice admired Henry's writing, maybe too much.
0: I would write something and hand it to her and say, what do you think of this? And she said, you wrote it, it's it's perfect.
1: They worked their way from living in trailers to a dignified but unpretentious house before they downsized to a retirement community. They did their camping in tents until they bought the most modest of RVs. It was the RV equivalent of a high-end dorm refrigerator. They were married for 71 years, until Alice passed away at close to 93 years old. As I said, they seemed to have a picture-perfect marriage. Until, actually, it was the whole time. Whenever I saw them walking together, this old couple holding hands, I thought, that, that looks nice. That looks like a good way to get old. They took care of what they had. They took care of each other. I know this firsthand. I've known Henry for over 20 years. When I was in my 20s, he taught me how to build some really nice bookshelves. That was just after I married his granddaughter. We're not married anymore, but I still call him Grandpa. Or Gramps, if I'm around my kids, who are his great-grandchildren. Henry was born in 1922. Alice in 1920. But we're going to start about 20 years later. It's 1942. There's a war on, but the redbuds and dogwoods have blossomed as always. The trees have finished flowering, and their leaves are full and green, ready to catch those longest days just around the corner. A bus has arrived in Chicago. College students are meeting up to caravan out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, for a summer geology program. Henry's a Haverford student, but he took the train from his parents' place in Terre Haute.
0: Stayed overnight in Chicago and was to meet the caravan on the campus of University of Chicago. So I was there with one of the Chicago profs and two girls from Chicago who were going to join the caravan. And they immediately stuffed me and my baggage in the back of a station wagon. And I looked out and I could see this very vivacious girl making sure that all the girls in the group knew each other. And I thought, there's a girl I'd like to know. Well, it was... Several days on the road before I got to meet her.
1: Once they did meet, they had plenty to talk about. Henry and Alice had both gone into geology because they loved being outside. Mountains, lakes, forests, rocks, and plants called them both out to explore. Alice was from upstate New York. Her interest in the natural world came at least in part by way of her father.
0: Her dad was a really good outdoorsman. Among other things, he built canoes, and uh, he several times canoed across uh, Lake Ontario to Canada, I guess just for the heck of it.
1: Alice wasn't afraid to get her hands dirty. Once, she and her family were picnicking on the shores of Seneca Lake. The kids finished their sandwiches, and licking the mayonnaise off their fingers, they went to explore the woods. One of them shouted, look! The others came over and saw a dead raccoon, flies buzzing around it. They all agreed they had to bring it over to show Dad.
0: Well, Alice had three brothers who were two years older, two years younger, and five years younger than she, and none of them would touch it. Well, she gingerly picked up the tip end of the tail, and the tail came right off. (laughs) <laughs> so, I don't think Dad got to see the <laughs> dead raccoon.
1: Henry had also been going out into the woods as long as he could remember. At seven years old, growing up on the outskirts of Terre Haute, he delighted himself.
0: prowling um, in the... Uh, woods and the hills and the ravines and gathering frogs' eggs and turtles and things like that to bring home. Never hatched the frogs. Uh, And, of course, we had to turn the turtles back out in the wild. But that probably had a lot to do with why I became a geologist, because I did start right then collecting a few rocks here and there.
1: And so, about 15 years later, he and Alice found themselves camping and studying geology in Wyoming. It was summer, so there was still a lot of light left in the evenings, and they decided to go sit on the bridge over the Hoback River for a while. They wanted to watch the water rush down on its way to the snake. They were still discovering things about each other. Henry's not the kind of person to say he was falling in love. Here's what he did say.
0: She knew when and where the moon was going to rise, and she knew the constellations, which you could see out there, and so forth, so eh, just one thing led to another.
1: That evening, as the sun hung low in the sky, they started something that would ripple through their retirement community almost 70 years later.
0: We just started out by holding hands on our walk, and uh, we held hands all the rest of our lives. When we moved to Meadowood and lived in one of the garden homes and had to walk down the road a couple blocks to dinner. We walked holding hands and we set off a new, uh, a new thing in Meadowwood. Uh, other people decided it was nice to hold hands, too.
1: They started holding hands in Wyoming, but it would be a few years before they could do it every day. Among other things, there was a war. Henry was in college, so he was deferred from the draft for about a year. Then he went to work for the U.S. Geological Survey. That got him deferred again because they were discovering oil, part of the war effort. The draft did catch up with him eventually. Sort of. In
0: 1945, I was called. That was the time that Roosevelt said, work or fight. I thought I was working. (laughs) But uh, I was called, and by that time, they were scraping the bottom of the barrel, and they wanted only prime invasion material, and the 25 or so young fellows who went with me to be looked at, I think we were all rejected for... uh, well, for instance, I have a bad back, a knee that was torn up in a skiing accident, and uh, several reasons I was rejected. I remember another man on the bus, as we're coming back to to the point where we gathered in Terre Haute, he had, had no teeth in his mouth, and he said, what did they want me to do? Bite the army? <laughs> I think we were all rejected. How did that feel? Oh, mixed. Yeah, it meant I could continue on with my education as planned. As I say, I felt I was serving when I was working for the U.S. Geological Survey. And there's no doubt in my mind that I would have washed out of uh, basic training right away. I couldn't stand at attention more than a couple of minutes. My back and my knee would let me down.
1: So Henry stayed in the Midwest, as he would for the rest of his life. He and Alice got married. She followed him to Ohio and then back to Ann Arbor so that he could work on a master's degree in geology. She ended up with a master's too.
0: That was kind of an accident. I started at Michigan. I had a, a an assistantship, and she started working for the department at Michigan. She was sorting mineral specimens for class use and so forth. But when summer came and I went to do my thesis out to the summer camp again, the uh, director of the summer camp said, "Well, you're you're going to be out and." Jackson, all summer, why don't you do a thesis too? (laughs) So she did. She put together a very nice, mine was on stratigraphy. Hers was on physiography.
1: And what was she looking at specifically?
0: She was looking at the terraces in Hoback Basin, the basin of Hoback River. And uh, I'm looking at it now, I say her thesis was better than mine.
1: Quick side note for any geology nerds out there. Her thesis was about stream terraces in the Hoback River Basin. They were from the Pleistocene era, and they had not been formed by glaciers, which is apparently how terraces are often formed. These came about because changes in the climate changed the stream behavior. Alice's thesis involved mapping them out.
0: And as I say, she did a very nice job of it. But uh, when we went to Penn State and David came along, that was the end of her intentions, so long that they had to be deferred.
1: I wonder what it meant to her, deferring her intentions on the arrival of their first child. What would her plans have been? How do we make peace with the choices we make? Alice seemed to be at peace in the years I knew her, more so than most people. What do you have to let go of to get there? In any case, she was letting go of some things and gaining others as she went with Henry through his career. He taught college-level geology, then went for a PhD at Ohio State and ended up with a job at the Indiana Geological Survey in Bloomington. Remember what I said about their modesty? For their first few years together, they lived in trailers. Henry was still working for the U.S. Geological Survey.
0: I was sent out to Wyoming, where there was no place to live, and it's obvious that I was going to get moved around. So we bought a what was then called the trailer house. It was supposed to be 21 feet long, but that was from the tip of the tongue to the back of the bumper, and the box was actually about 18 feet. So it was really compact living.
1: That tiny house would have been pretty stylish among a certain set in the 21st century. They took it with them to Du Bois and Laramie and Ann Arbor, and then to State College, Pennsylvania.
0: But when it came time that... Our son David was coming along. When we were in State College, we had to buy a, a bigger trailer house, which was all of twenty-four feet long. It was uh, more up to date. The per- first one had had a genuine ice box. This one had a refrigerator, but it had no other, no other plumbing. I had to haul a tank of water. We have. Pictures of Dave getting his bath in the kitchen sink, which was the only place we had such a device, and no toilet, no washroom in the trailer.
1: They moved again to Kent, Ohio, and they were finally able to buy a house that was built on the ground. It was brand new, 20 feet by 30, also tiny.
0: But we survived in it.
1: Then they moved to Bloomington. They got hold of an antique house that they could fix up together. Life unfolded according to plan. Alice, with one master's degree so far, took care of the kids in the house. Henry, with his doctorate, worked at the geological survey. They had two kids at this point. Dave was a first grader. Bonnie was four.
0: And uh, Alice heard Bon talking to her new friendly neighbor. My dad's a doctor, but not the kind that does anybody any good. (laughs)
1: <laughs> all those years, they kept getting called outdoors. They took the kids and camped all over the country. Camping with kids took some getting used to. When Dave was about three, they went to the Door Peninsula in eastern Wisconsin.
0: We slept in the car. We had a camp stove and a camper camp icebox, so we had very minimal equipment. But we spent the better part of a week indoor county in the fall, not when the not when the spring flowers were out. And so that was Dave age three, maybe. That was his first experience camping. I particularly remember we took our Coleman Lantern and we were walking to go to the bathroom before we went to bed. And Dave enjoyed the monstrous shadows in ahead of us uh, because I was carrying the ladder down about my knee level. And all of a sudden, he raised his arms and said, Woof! <laughs> S- scared me half to death. Well, <laughs> it didn't scare him.
1: As Henry said, they didn't have a lot of camping equipment at the beginning there. They spent their first vacation away from Bloomington in the Black Hills with a very minimal tent.
0: The kids slept in the car, and uh, in the middle of the night, I was awakened with the horn going off. Bonnie was sleeping in the front seat, and she'd got her feet tangled in the horn ring. (laughs) So I had to make an emergency run. Uh, And they were both good campers. We got bigger and better tents that would hold the four of us and so forth. And, uh, oh, went as far as the Canadian Rockies. Maybe, yeah, we went clear to the West Coast with them. And I once counted, I had a map that had all the national parks, national miners, national historic sites, etc. And I Looked at that and found that Alice and I had been to two hundred of them for at least a at least a uh, lunch stop and an hike around.
1: Was there a particular trip that was that re- like really stands out in your mind?
0: Well, it's hard to say because I I find things to do, things to learn in every corner of this country. Mm. We've camped in Florida, we've camped in Maine, we've camped in Newfoundland, we've camped in Alaska, we've camped in California, and places in between, and uh, I just love the whole country. Could go any place right now and enjoy myself, huh.
1: but I can't. But maybe you can, right now as long as you're back after the break. This is Interstates. Interstates, Alex Chambers. Henry Gray turns 100 this week. He spent about 70% of his life with his wife, Alice. She passed away in 2013. Now he lives in Meadowood, a retirement community here in Bloomington. Alice and Henry both had master's degrees in geology, which they got around the middle of the century, the 20th century. She'd been planning to do graduate work in library science. That plan went on hold when their son David was born, and it stayed on hold while Dave and Bonnie were young. But once the kids were in high school...
0: She decided to go after a degree in in library science. And she would be bouncing down the walk, feeling like a co-ed when some kid would go by and say, Hi, Mom! (laughs) And there went the illusion.
1: Alice finished her library degree and worked for the Package Library on campus.
0: You could write in with a question, and the Package Library would put together a bunch of articles, I should say a group of articles, from... uh, magazines, newspapers on that subject, and uh, I guess maybe school teachers or maybe maybe high school students did that sort of thing, preparing for term papers maybe or something right. like or maybe preparing for a whole course, high school course, I don't know.
1: It earned them some extra money, helped pay for the kids' college and all, but it probably also felt good to do something she'd been planning on for years, even if she only wanted to do it part-time. As Alice and Henry's horizons expanded, so did their houses. They went from that 18-foot trailer to the 500-square-foot house, and eventually to their last, a farmhouse on the outskirts of town. I'm actually not sure why the houses are turning out to be such a big part of this story. I guess it's part of how you make a life together sharing that space, that structure. I think, as much as they loved traveling around the country, home was also really important to them. Both their adult children settled in Bloomington. They still celebrate holidays and four generations of birthdays together. Also, I think Henry and Alice both liked taking care of their houses. So when they came across one on the outskirts of town, surrounded by trees, Alice thought it was worth a visit.
0: The house was advertised in the paper... And I was reading the the ad to her. She was doing something in the kitchen, I think. And she said, I know that house. Let's go see it. So we went out right away to see it. And uh, I think we were the first ones to look at it, 10 o'clock in the morning. When we were back in our house in Park Ridge, the lady phoned and Said they wanted us. They wanted us to have the house, and they lowered the price a little bit. And uh, I was trying to think where we're we going to get that money. When Alice turned to the phone and said, "We'll buy it." <laughs> and so we were out there on King Road, where she counted a hundred and twenty species of birds that were in the yard, in the trees that we saw fly over or that we heard, she was good at that. I never—now I can identify a few of the birds that I see here, but—
1: They lived there until their early 80s, and then it was time to downsize. They packed up their books and paintings. Some went to their family. They donated others. And they kept some for their new, smaller space. They walked hand-in-hand down the road to dinner. Set off a trend. They got visits from their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And then, in 2010, Alice got a diagnosis. Lung cancer.
0: She never smoked, but there about 17 other ways you can get lung cancer, radon being one. We probably lived in at least three houses that may have been strong on radon before anybody knew about it. Anyway, when she was diagnosed and given the probability, I forget what the probability was, she said, well, we all have to die of something. And she planned to live to be the age of her parents, which was 92, and she lived to almost 93. But aside from the cancer, she was programmed to live longer than that. My mother was, well, a complainer. She always had to see the doctor about this or that. Uh, And she was... Complaining about stomach problems and the doctor was giving her this and that and the other. Finally, the doctor decided that he just had to operate and take a look and she was just all gone with cancer, ovarian cancer, that they've got a better handle on it now, but at that time, everybody, with ovarian cancer, got diagnosed too late. Yes, at my age, I think about a lot of the ways people die. Alice just ran down. She fought it as long as she could. And uh, we continued traveling in our little motor home up till 2011. When we finally sold it, our last trip was a short trip up to Delphi where we did some walking and enjoyed the uh, history of the place. And on the way home, she said she thought she ought to take her turn at driving. So I said, okay. Ten minutes later, she said, no. (laughs) Uh, She just didn't have the strength for it of course, got to the point where she had to use a walker, mm-hmm. and uh, her cancer was inoperable. She got some radiation treatment, but it got away. But still, she would get on her walker, and uh, we lived over the little house on 1101 Linden, and uh, she'd say, let's walk down that way, and, and she'd say, no. Let's turn around. (laughs) Uh, She kept fighting it all the way. The night before she died, we had a pretty good day. She was in a wheelchair, but I found I could get her wheelchair out on the little patio where we had our afternoon tea, and we watched a little TV after dinner, and she took a rest in her recliner, I think. And uh, when I took her in to put her to bed, she just suddenly flopped on the bed and was unconscious. Couldn't I couldn't move her. I had to get my daughter-in-law, who's an RN, thank you. And uh, between the two of us, we got her in bed. I could have gotten nurses from Meadowood to do that, but thought I'd keep it in the family. And uh, Susie stayed that night, and the next morning she just gradually slowed down and died very quietly. We, We had gathered the whole family. I think you were there. She just never recovered consciousness.
1: Henry has a picture of her from a few years before.
0: She's standing on a trail looking down a down a ravine, down a valley, and uh, the thing that impresses me about it is that she's so connected, she's so alert. She's got her uh, binoculars in her hand, and she's just, Looking for anything looking for a bird to identify or something like that. She was just so thoroughly connected to everything around her. And she was that way she was alert to everything. She didn't miss anything. If a bird flew over and she just glanced up and looked at it, then she'd tell me what kind of bird it was. She thought we ought some time to get a bug-eye lens for the camera, and then just go lie down out someplace in a, in a field and take a picture of clouds. She was just so observant. She just was aware of, incredibly aware of everything.
1: Along with being a geologist, Henry's also a poet. That picture is at the beginning of the collection he dedicated to her.
0: Alice had said that I should put my poems in a little book, and I said, okay. And I worked on it very hard. I worked on it too hard when she was dying, and I didn't make it. And I should have just said, hold the presses, and finished it, because this is bigger and better than the first edition. We can try this one that That goes with the picture, picture. called Trailside Reverie. Pause and take in the silences, silences that surround you, silences that arrive unannounced, silences that are hard to find, silences of eternity, while all around you life springs ever anew.
1: If you live long enough, the silences expand. When he was younger, Henry wrote another poem about how his horizons enlarged from his mother's arms to his bedroom to when he finally got out of the house and found infinity.
0: Well, my horizons are closing in now and uh, I haven't found a good way to express that in my poetry.
1: But, as he says, You have to play the hand you're dealt.
0: And that's just the way it is. So the poems that I write now are a little darker.
1: What keeps you going now? What do you look forward to?
0: (laughs) Somebody at dinner the other night asked me if I was looking forward to reaching 100. And I said, no, I'm looking forward to dessert. (laughs) One step at a time.
1: Henry's horizons are narrow now. But on some level, he's always known how to go forward through his days. I think that's what got him this far.
0: I put this shirt on this morning saying, oh, that's my Tuesday-Wednesday shirt. Uh, That's the end of that.
1: That is the end of that. That was Henry Gray, a retired geologist, a parent, grandparent, and great-grandparent, and the husband of Alice Gray for 72 years, before she passed away at almost 93. Henry's 100th birthday is March 18th. I want to wish him a good one. listening to InterStates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us, or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. InterStates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Paskash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Andrea and Ross Martini-Eiler and their guest Nikki, Katie Ratty for making the story, and Henry Gray. Our theme music is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music and Ramon Monrath-Sender. All right, time to take a minute and listen. I've been listening to a drainpipe emptying into a partially frozen creek on the campus of Indiana University Bloomington. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening.